So, a rabbi, an imam, and a preacher walk into a podcast. It sounds like a joke, but it's really a friendship. I am Imam Omar Shaheed of Masjid Es-Salam. I'm Rabbi Jonathan Case from Beth Shalom Synagogue. And I am Reverend Ellen Fowler-Skidmore of Forest Lake Presbyterian Church. All of us gathered today in Columbia, South Carolina, to welcome you to our podcast, Abraham's Table. We began a conversation in episode 27 last time to discuss the ways in which all of our faiths have been twisted throughout history to justify hate, terror, and murder. Jews, Christians, and Muslims all have in our histories terrible evidence of hate justified by faith and violence masquerading as religious purity. And there are passages in the Jewish, Christian, and Muslim scriptures that, when taken out of context, have been used to justify violence. In our last episode, Imam Shahid talked about passages in the Quran that have been used to justify violence. And we realized then that this conversation needed to be continued. So today, let's begin with the Jewish scriptures that have, just been, that have been used to justify violence, even dressing it in the language of faithfulness. How are these passages rightly understood or applied to the life of faith? Welcome to Abraham's Table. It's good to be together, and with your permission, I'd like to begin with a, a thought which is not directly connected with where we want to go today, but will be in a second. <laughs> in Jewish thought, we have never accepted the idea that the Alpha and Omega, that the beginning and the end of our understanding of Scripture lies within the words themselves but rather is the tip-off of something significantly larger than that. And I guess the most obvious example of that is sacrifices were discontinued 2,000 years ago and are largely a marginal memory at best within the context of Judaism. So since that whole arena of Jewish practice no longer exists, how then do we relate or understand to this arcane program of sacrifices which does not relate to our lives at all. So using that as a moment to reflect, because that's exactly where I'm going to end up going with this, is that we've never interpreted Scripture exactly as it appears, but rather we've looked at the Scripture and asked, what does this intend? What is the internal meaning of this? So, Can I ask a question in that description when you say the Alpha and the Omega? Are you using that as a term meaning God, or are you meaning all that may be known? Neither. <laughs> Good thing I asked. <laughs> that that when, we read, when we read the Bible, we understand that so much of it is more than simply what it reads as, that it has to have some sort of deeper intent and meaning behind it. Sometimes even in a letter, not even a word, but a letter itself can be the tip-off to some grander scheme of understanding of what the import of the text may be. So let me give you an example of that. Okay. So um, actually, yeah, I'll start with one. When Cain murders his brother Abel at the very beginning of the Bible, the Bible says, 
your brother's blood cries out to me from the earth. However, in the Hebrew, the word blood is actually plural. So it doesn't make any sense in English to say bloods, but that's exactly what it does mean. Your brother's bloods cry out to me from the ground. So the interpretation of that is not just that Abel was dead and somehow his soul was excoriated and crying out to the universe, my brother has killed me, but rather Cain not only murdered his brother, he murdered all future possibility of the progeny that he would ultimately produce. So it's more than a prohibition against murder. It's actually an understanding that when you murder one person, when you kill one person, you're killing unlimited potential of people that would stem from that. So when I, when I refer to the Bible not being the Alpha and Omega of all things, I'm saying that the grander scheme of interpretation of the Bible is really what Judaism is focused in, intently on. So it's not just an archetypal story. It's beyond that. It's something... Uh, an interpretation that goes beyond the literal story. Yes, sometimes well beyond the parameters of the story. You know, and I, I suppose that is one example, the Bloods example, of how that interpretation is, is thought of, considered, and then ultimately weighed. So, for example, in the Talmud, which is basically an exegesis of the Bible, it says something actually quite similar to what it says in the Quran, mm -hmm. that a person who murders one individual has murdered an entire universe yes. based mm -hmm. upon, one, that right. statement of the bloods, mm -hmm. and number two, that God created a single person to start creation, to teach mm -hmm. that if Adam was destroyed, there would be no people that would be descended from him so that... When you kill one person, you kill basically a universe. And by the way, the opposite also applies. Right. If you save one person, you save the universe. Right. And the Quran says some. What is? Yeah, same. It's essentially the same as as Jonathan just mentioned. Right. Mm -hmm. So m moving moving outward yes. to the more specific example of this. So. One of the most disturbing passages in the Bible comes from Deuteronomy chapter 25, where we are told by God to exterminate the people who are called Amalekites, who are all descended from a guy by the name of, or connected to a guy by the name of Amalek. And the story that we understand in context is that when the Israelites were going out of Egypt, they were in a long column, and at the front of the column were the soldiers, the strong men who were going to be protective of the rest of the people, trailing behind. And the people at the very rear, who were the most protected, were the children, the elderly, the people basically who were most defenseless. And what Amalek did was he saw how the formation was going through the desert, and he attacked deliberately the rear to slaughter as many people as he could with out inflicting any casualties of himself. He was thoroughly evil in that way. He was killing the women and children. First. In the back. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and the Bible comes out with basically three things that in response to that. Number one, remember what Amalek did to you. And then it says wipe out his memory, which of course is a little problematic. How can you remember 
and then forget at the same time. Um, and then the third one is, is that um, his people should be wiped out in entirety, which is another word for genocide, which is why this passage is so disturbing. I mean, I think we all get when somebody nefarious seeks to wreak destruction on people who are most vulnerable, it is an atrocity. But we still have to be considerate of, okay, what's, what, what, what's, the, what's our response to that? Wipe, wipe and return all the women and children out and everybody else? Um, is that what the Bible is commanding? So that, that's right. the question, how do we deal with the fact that this is what God commands? Where in the story about what the Amalekites did is Deuteronomy 25, 17 to 19. This story is found in, in two places. It's also found in Exodus. Okay. I, was, I had been looking up, and it was like 1 Samuel 15 about the Lord says, I'm going to punish the Amalekites for what they did. Right. And that's where Saul's told to kill them all, and he doesn't, and then he gets in trouble because some of the people keep some of the spoil from the Amalekites. That is true, yeah. And there's a third episode, um, which can also, or a fourth, I should say, that can also be found in the Scroll of Esther, which most people aren't, are not aware of. In the Scroll of Esther, the enemy is called Haman. Right. And his lineage is traced back to a guy by the name of Agag. And Agag traces his lineage back to, guess who? Amalek. Now, now either there's a really bad gene running through this family line that just can't, <laughs> just will not, you know, do any kind of repentance. And I think this is really a key question. And I don't think, I do not believe that anybody in their right mind will say, yes, there is a bad seed genetic line that needs to be wiped out. That is just an absurd and atrocious idea. And I think it would, would rub any wrong way. So if that's not the case, then the only reason why all of these st stories strung together would make any sense is this using as, as, as a metaphor to understand how we need to combat evil in our world. So let me try, let me try to bring this mm -hmm. in a complete circle now. I mentioned at the beginning that we don't believe that the Bible... It's the beginning and the end of all things, but rather it rests upon us as people who interpret the Bible to ask, what's the real intent? What does this really mean? And what it seems, what every person I know, every scholar I've ever studied says the same thing. We are not to ever become who the hated people that articulated in our scriptures or wherever we're never ever to allow ourselves to degrade ourselves to become them. And if that's the case, then how do we understand the command by God to do genocide? And we say that God would never command that. God is commanding us to combat hatred, to combat prejudice, to combat all the evils that infect society, but never to degrade ourselves to come down to that level, that God's intent was not to commit genocide, but rather to commit ourselves to fighting evil wherever it may occur. And I, if I can demonstrate that, 
with one thing that's going to make everybody's eyes cross. So in Hebrew, every letter corresponds to a number. Mm-hmm. In English, we'd say A equals 1, B equals 2, 3, and so on. The name Amalek in Hebrew corresponds to the number 240. The word for doubt in Hebrew corresponds to 240. So the lesson that we extrapolate from this is that the seeds that Amalek sowed were seeds of doubt in everyone's mind about what was right and what was just. And they had to understand for themselves what is correct to do, not necessarily what they feel, not a knee-jerk reaction, but to weigh up the consequences of what they think, what they believe, and ultimately what they do. So how do we make sense then of of when Samuel tells Saul, the Lord has said, go and kill all the Amalekites, the, the men, the warriors, the women, the children, the livestock, and then Saul doesn't, and Samuel comes in and says, because you didn't do this, God's going to take the kingdom from you and give it to somebody else who's more worthy. And then Samuel hacks Agag Agag. Agag Mm -hmm. into pieces Mm -hmm. in front of Saul, who had showed mercy. That's the piece I just, even having heard you say that, that do you say then the people who wrote that section of 1 Samuel they put their own voice in God's mouth? No, the way that we would understand it is that God told through the mouth of the prophet to tell the king to destroy Amalek, or Agag in this instance. It wasn't up to him to simply disobey the order, but it was up to him to act like Abraham. What's the difference between Abraham and Saul? When God tells Abraham, I'm going to destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. What does Abraham do? He doesn't say, okay, let me get some popcorn. What he says, he argues with God. And that's precisely Saul's mistake. Saul's mistake was not disobeying God. Saul's mistake was doing it in a fashion that basically was deceitful. That suited him, that enriched him and his soldiers. I thought you were going to say Abraham Abraham took his son to offer him as an offering, that what should have happened is he should have done exactly what God said and God might have intervened? Should we go there? That's a different story. That is a different (laughs) story. Sorry. There may be a rabbit trail, but that is fascinating. We, we, you know, being um, faithful people to God, our responsibility is to be honest with God and honest with ourselves at the same time. Not simply to surreptitiously sneak around the back saying, well, this looks better to me than that. But it's, it's Abraham's vision of arguing for the sake of justice and truth and being the defense attorney for humanity. Over and against God? Even against God. Wow. Isn't that what made Abraham Abraham? I think that's why he's the progenitor of our collective faiths because he was willing to risk arguing with God for the sake of humanity. Comparatively to Noah, right? Mm -hmm. When God said, I'm going to destroy the world and and, and wash it clean in a flood, Noah didn't raise an eyebrow. Who's better? But a lot of people died in both cases under the auspices of God said. 
Right. True. But at least Abraham put up a fight. Does that make God the bad guy? Okay, let's go back to the story of the binding of Isaac. <laughs> so, so it's that binding of Isaac in most of our faces, or, or Ishmael in, in, in the Quran, is often called the test. So I would question, what was the test? Was the test whether Abraham would actually do the act of God? Or was the test whether he would, actually, would resist God when he said, don't do it? You see, in those cultures, way back then, it was de rigueur, my understanding from reading history, that people would sacrifice the firstborn son to God. You know, these are the gods of, of our culture. This is what we do. You know, come on along, son. We want it to rain this season, so you're going to be the barbecue. People did this. If that was true, then of course Abraham would sacrifice his first son if God told him to, because he wanted it to rain, he wanted the crops to grow, he wanted all those things that he knew from society needed to happen and to affect those changes. So I would argue that perhaps the real test of Abraham was not whether he was willing to sacrifice his son, but whether he was willing to not when God said, don't do it. Hmm. That's, that brings to mind when we read of uh, Abraham and Abraham in his willingness to obey God and his willingness to put God above everything. And that's the test that we run into in our lives is that we put things before our obedience to God. And so the test of Abraham in the Quran was not just his test, his son also was right. was tested too. And they found, and they were found obedient, submission, uh, obedient in their nature, in their obedience to God. And then they were shown a way out of that. So sacrifice, the test, the test comes back to us today. You know, whether we're willing to sacrifice our ego, our, our narrow-mindedness, as we were talking earlier, uh, do we have concerns that are just favorable to us? Or do, do we look at what's good for humanity? Big sacrifice today that's testing us. Material uh, acquisitions. When I was a young, just down to seminary, I was teaching a Sunday school class on, on in our tradition, the binding of Isaac, the sacrifice of Isaac. And it was a, a group of older adults. Amazing, they listened. But we were talking about this story, and I, I basically said, I can't understand. I don't know what to do with this piece where God says, sacrifice your son. And they, to a person, said, we, we get it. We sent our children off to war, <clears throat> or we went to war, and we were willing to be sacrificed. So it was that, it was placing nation above self in that case. And I've never been able to read that story in quite the same way. People who know what it is to place their safety or what they love more than the world on an, on an altar for what? For what are we willing to yeah. die? Interesting. You know, just continuing with that same strand of thought, when parents will no longer be willing to sacrifice their son for country, this world will be at peace. Or Hitler would have won. 
Yeah. What I meant by my statement, you're absolutely right. <laughs> what I meant by statement was all parents refused all to parents. sit. Yeah. But somehow evil doesn't work that way. Yeah. Well, you know, there was a greater good to come out of that obedience to God by Abraham and his son. Look at all the followers and children that Abraham has today. But if he had just rejected that, that obedience to God at that time, who knows? But I think about all of the pain and suffering and death that Abraham's children have inflicted on each other in God's name. And not, it, not God. They, they inflicted upon each other. Right. But in God's name. In God's name. Yeah, not right. God. And I think that's what we do <laughs> and that, in God's name. And that's what we're talking about. Yeah, you know, if you, if, you look, if you look at the scripture that we began with talking about Amalek and, and the ascribed genocide that uh, we believe or some might believe is called for, it's a wrong path. Yeah. So what do you do with like the passages when the people of Israel came back and rebuilt the wall and Ezra and Nehemiah say, okay, now you've got to send away all the, the women, the foreign women that you married and, and all of your children. You have to kick them out to that sort of purity passage. I don't know what to do with that either. That's uh, Talk about violence against women and children. That's a tough one for me. You know, the Bible is not about Little Red Riding Hood. <laughs> it's, you know, when you mention that, that story about it, uh, that, you know, Ezra and Nehemiah, and, you know, and Maya, um, this is what people do. It's what we've done with eugenics. Just because we do it doesn't mean it's right. Just because Ezra said it doesn't mean it's correct. So you have to be willing to argue with Scripture. That wonderful story in Genesis about Jacob, who meets an angel of God and wrestles with the angel of God, I think is nothing more than a, a wonderful metaphor for all of us that we need to do that God wrestling all of the time. That we, you know, we're in it for the game. We're in it whole, body and soul, with God, wrestling with it, wrestling with, as you quite rightly said, our ego being willing to be able to tell the difference between the voice of God and the voice of ego? Does some of this come back to the collapsing of faith into political power? I mean, that's, that's what I think a lot of times when I read the Psalms, which part of, part of which feels like it dropped straight from God's pen, and, and some of which... I have difficulty with. I've said on here multiple times, yes, yeah, Psalm 149, I have a difficult time. And, you know, God is holy. God will subdue our enemies, put them under our feet. The praise of God be in our throats and the double-edged sword in our hands. That it's this faithfulness tied to political domination that is everywhere in I know in, in our Old Testament and then in the Psalms and your, in the Jewish scriptures, I assume is it in the Quran too, but it's that collapsing that has caused so much pain and suffering. Is it possible to be faithful and be in political power? <laughs> There's so much there that's so weighted. We have to, in the initial as well as in the final analysis, 
be willing to wrestle with who we are when we read those specific passages. We all know what's right. We all know what's good. I mean, there are, Maybe. There are perversions. But you, going back to Little Red Riding Hood, you, you, can, you can take the side of, of the big bad wolf and say the big bad wolf was right in wanting to swallow the grandmother in Little Red Riding Hood. You can articulate reasons why that's so, but you know in your deepest heart you, it's not so. So that passage from Psalm 149, that you quote a double-edged sword, and that, why is it a double-edged sword? It's not so much to execute judgment on the faithless, but who am I? How am I faithless? How do I need to use, Why is it a double-edged sword? Because one's facing out and one's facing in. Oh, I just thought it was because it's more efficient. <laughs> <laughs> a double-edged sword is more dangerous than a single-edged sword. But it points in two directions, the mm-hmm. other as well as self. Mm-hmm. And I think you know, how we read those scriptures is not so much what the scriptures say, but who we are in the process of reading them. What kind of glasses, what kind of lenses am I wearing when I look at this? Am I looking for reasons to destroy people? If you're looking for that, you'll find it. Well, yeah, because yeah, I was reading uh, in the Quran where it says of all that God has revealed and select the best, the best now. That, that best can't be better just for me. It has to be better for society. That's a, but I, that's only a God-conscious thought. Because human, I'm Presbyterian, so humans, Reformed Christians would say, we don't necessarily trust that, that what you're going to do is going to be in everybody's best interest. We trust and we verify. Mm-hmm. We, we ask and we, we do the legislation to make sure that you're incentivized to do what's good for everybody else. So does everybody know in their deepest hearts? Mm, well, I don't I, know if I, I know that. I think that's why dialogue is good. I want to believe that even in the most nefarious, nefarious of, of people, there is the pulse of godliness that beats within them, their soul which knows the difference between right and wrong, and they make a choice to either listen to that voice or to drown it out. And I would agree that that voice is there, but I think over time, lying, cheating, yeah, yeah. stealing, it's, it's like building up a callus until they're... There are folks who cannot tell the difference between right and wrong other than how it affects me because they have their hearts, their consciences, their souls are so calloused. You make a good point. I think think one one of the most profound moments I had during a religious service where I kind of stopped the service and I just had a conversation with people took place when I asked everybody whether they thought people were intrinsically good or not. And looking over the pages of history, it's very easy to say people are evil. God had it right. You know, with Noah, you know, we, we just, God's just very tolerant of our evil day and night. But one of the people in the congregation whose entire family was wiped out by the Holocaust said, I don't believe that for a moment. People are good. Humanity is good. We see what we believe. Mm-hmm. I was listening to... Uh the NPR, and they was talking about this, uh, what is it, AK-47? The rifle. Rifle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When did it become popular? 
in the streets. They were talking about it, it was a military-style rifle designed for warfare to kill as many people as you had to kill on the other side, etc. But it, it wasn't popular in the streets of the communities until they started, they found out how to market that rifle. And they went to the games that the young people play. The games and they like made Like the video games, you mean? Video games. They made it popular there. And when they made it popular there, then it began to catch on in terms of its uh, ability to do certain things. So my point was that they, that they analyzed with the information they had to show how that had grown. It wasn't always popular because there were different times that they tried to put laws or restrictions there. And I just thought about it, something, something that was said. We can be inundated by so much misinformation, so many lies, so much truth, until it becomes difficult to discern what is right. But in the core, in the core, and if you can get back to that core and reach people, you'll find that people are basically inherently good, but we can be pulled off course. We can be influenced off course. And that story is given to us. Adam and his wife, weren't, they weren't disobeying God until that other entity came in and started suggesting, started bringing in those uh, different ideas and concepts to interpret what God wanted them. But they weren't, in, in the initial beginning of Scripture, I don't see where they were disobeying God. After the entity came in is when they uh, influenced and, and inundated them with, it, with what interpreting for them what God wanted it's when they made when they made the wrong choice, but I don't see a condemnation forever there. I see there's a turning back. Well, in the Quran, it gives it that uh, Adam and his wife turned back in repentance, and they said, "We have wronged our own souls by the choices we've made here." And I read that story as just a, it's a matter of time. I'm, you know, when you wake up in the morning, you think, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to be kind and patient. And so far, I'm done, I've done really well. And now, Lord, I'm going to get out of bed. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so every day, every day, I have the opportunity to choose to tell the truth and a lie. Every day I have the opportunity to be impatient or to be patient. Every day I have the chance to choose, and I am the sum of those accumulated choices. So the goal is not. I, I don't perceive that it is humanly possible to be entirely kind, good, loving, and patient. My goal is to be more often than not Christ-like in the language yeah. of my tradition, and that's a, a cumulative piece. Yeah. So why are we here? <laughs> Why are we here? Because we, we, we don't have faith. Uh, we don't think that getting to know each other will help to enhance uh, what we're doing, help to enhance those that we know and influence. That's why we're here. But you have to be mm -hmm. open to find out. That's true. So there are a whole lot of very sincere people who do not want to be confused by the facts. That is true. But there are a whole lot of people that want better information, better knowledge. 
And who want peace. Yeah, I want peace. It's being strong within yourself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Knowing, that, knowing that you are who you are and that every person is something contribute yeah. to the pot to yeah. make us all infinitely more rich. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I, I'll give you an example. My neighbors, my neighbors, as far as I know, they're good Christians. And one, the, the daughter, granddaughter, killed the uh, brother. You've heard about it. Stabbed him in the heart, and she had some issues going on. So my wife and I, we took the time to get a card and put a little something in it and just carried it over and and shared in their their grief as much as we could, but encouraged keep moving. So it's, it's been a couple of weeks, and so he... He saw me the other day, he said, I want to thank you because he's been so busy for that card. I said, well, that's a card. He said, but you don't know how much that card mm-hmm. meant. So yeah. all of us, I believe, are essentially good, but we run into difficulties. We run into conflicts, and that's why we got to come back and ask God, what do you mean by this? What can I get from this? What can I do for this? Well, yeah. mm-hmm. in that vein, and I know we're... Long, going long here, but I I need to ask for help. If we're going to talk about Jewish scriptures in my Old Testament, the pieces of scripture that sometimes I have the most difficulty knowing what to do with are the ones that appear to incite violence against women, and in my tradition, violence against uh, homosexuality. So this whole idea that somebody might be stoned for being an adulterer, or you know, killed for a same-sex union, that those are a whole nother level of violence that's real and that discussion is live, right. at least in the Christian church. Right. Well, what I'm going to say about that probably is going to rub people the wrong way, but I'm going to put it out there anyway. So my understanding and the understanding of all of the scholars whom I've studied with about, for example, homosexuality is that the prohibition against homosexuality in the Bible is all about the projection of strength against underlings. Oftentimes, and including in these days, children are kept as chattel for the very gross, terrible misuse of power over them. And I think everybody can read between the lines of what I'm saying. And that also happens with adults, that the person who is the weaker of the two is used as um, used and abused as chattel. And the prohibition against that in biblical, in biblical language that I understand, the prohibition is all about don't do that is evil. And I can certainly move forward in the other direct, in the same direction to talk about the Sanctions against uh, those people who have committed adultery, those individuals who, um, who are women, who are at a disadvantage um, because they are women, that all those need to be contextualized, not only in the Bible, but contextualized in the larger sense, the larger scheme of, are some people more equal than others? And I think everybody realizes how wrong I'll use the word evil, how evil that is. As we go into it, 
probably next week we'll probably have some more comments yeah. from the Islamic perspective. Yeah. Okay. So you're telling me we got it. We do. We need to wrap it up. I know. Well, you know, we're not done. Order to be just. Do justice. We we <laughs> we want people to come back. <laughs> All right. We'll do like they do on TV. I was watching this uh, this uh, fraternity court or something like that, and said, uh, <laughs> and you. Then they went to a commercial break. <laughs> so <laughs> and you, and we'll give you the answer next. Jonathan's going to answer all your questions next time. Thank you for joining us at Abraham's Table. This podcast is a labor of love. Produced by us, Imam Omar Shahid, Rabbi Jonathan Case, and Reverend Ellen Fowler Skidmore. The music, Shofar Worship, is shared with us by the musician Kyle Lovett and may be found on Spotify. We hope that you have benefited from and enjoyed our conversations and will share them with your friends and family. You are invited always to communicate with us via email at abrahamstablesc at gmail.com from Columbia, South Carolina. And until we meet again, we wish you God's peace. Aleichem Shalom on you. Let there be peace. Assalamu alaikum. God's peace be on all of us. Amen.